Good morning, everybody. It is great to be with you today. I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3 is a passage of scripture that I vividly remember reading as an 18-year-old young man and freshman in my college dorm room. This is one of these texts for me that changed the trajectory of my life. And so I'm excited to be able to uh, share it with you this morning. And uh, as we do, this morning we're continuing, jumping back into our series in Philippians. We're talking about spiritual growth. We're talking about moving forward together. And what we see in this text is a dynamic in which spiritual growth, the growth dynamic that happens in our life is when our pursuit of God aligns in many ways with our enthusiasm or passion for him. So let's pray and ask for God's help as we read his word together. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you, to give to you, to pray to you, and to hear from your word. You are a good and gracious God, and you are so worthy of all that we have and all that we are. It is good, Lord, to see you and to hear you and to know you. It gives us joy. It gives us purpose. It gives us direction. And we worship you. Father, help us today as we read your word. As we consider what it means for us, we pray that you would quicken our hearts and our minds, that you would challenge us and encourage us for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. There are a number of expressions in this life that we use to communicate our pursuits and our enthusiasm aligning together. Some of them trivial in nature, some of them more substantive. Things like, you are what you eat. Working hard for something that you don't care about is called stress, but working hard for something that you love is called passion. You can tell what a person loves by looking at their credit card statement. There are a lot of different ways to communicate the idea of our pursuits in life and how they align with our points of enthusiasm or passion. And this morning in Philippians chapter 3, we see that Paul talks about the pursuit of God and how that pursuit aligns with our enthusiasm or our passions. A moment ago, I asked you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. I'd ask you to take hold of it now. It's found on page 981 of the Pew Bible. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the, of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul is addressing the variety of ways that people pursue God in order to obtain his blessing. And as he highlights them, he highlights some of the ways that they pursue God but will not ultimately give them confidence as they stand before him, all leading up to the one way that they can pursue him that will give ultimate confidence as they stand before him. The first way we see is in verses 2 and 3, and we might summarize it this way. Religious rituals won't give you standing before God. In the early church, there were many Jews, devout Jews, who came to faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah. And as such, these Jews carried with them their Jewish beliefs, their Jewish heritage, their Jewish rituals and practices, and they developed a belief that Jesus, as a Jew, came as the Messiah for the Jews alone. And non-Jewish people as they began to put their faith in Christ, these Gentiles, as we call them, heard the gospel, the good news of God's grace. They trusted in Jesus. But the Jews would say, well, you have to become a Jew first, and then you can become a Christian. And so they would tell them to get circumcised. They would tell them that they had to follow the law. They would tell them that this Jewish Messiah came for Jews. And if you're not a Jew, he didn't come for you. And so, in this way, Christianity was really a sect or a subsection of Judaism. In essence, they were saying that you need to still observe the law and put your faith in Jesus. We'd summarize it simply by saying, the law plus Jesus leads to salvation. If you want salvation, if you want the blessings of God in your life, follow the law. Identify as a Jew. Commit to living a life in accordance with this Old Testament. These Jews called themselves the circumcision. That is to say, we are the real Jewish Christians. And if you are not then you are nothing more than an unclean dog. And so we see in verse 2, when Paul says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, he is saying that those Jews, they call you Gentiles unclean dogs, but in fact, they are the real dogs. Furthermore, the circumcision that they so highly esteem is really nothing more than mutilation of the flesh. He continues that we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus 
but put no confidence in the flesh. His point is this. The identifying marker for those who are part of the family of God is not a religious ritual. It's not an ethnic heritage. In fact, these rituals in and of themselves give us no standing before God. He continues in verses 4 to 6. Look at it with me. And we might summarize it by saying that your spiritual resume won't give you confidence before God. I wonder if you ever think about your spiritual resume. A resume is a written summary of a person's qualifications or experiences. And by your spiritual resume, I mean things like the family heritage that you come from, maybe the college that you went to, maybe the church that you have been a part of for a long time, and most pointedly, the ways that you have actively engaged in serving God through your years as a Christian. I wonder what your resume looks like, your qualifications and your experiences. How often do you think about this resume? Is it important? How important? I wonder what it does to you when you think about it. A few weeks ago, I had lunch with a church member and a friend, and our friend wanted to talk about spiritual things, matters of faith and the Bible and the end times. And we settled in in the conversation because she wanted to talk about the nature of good works in the Christian life. And she mentioned that in her uh, tradition that she was raised in, faith was not talked about all that much as a child. But what was really emphasized to her was good works, that she needed to do certain things, that she needed to identify as a Christian by engaging in certain types of activities, that the better that she was, the more clear it was that she was a true believer in Jesus. And we talked about this for a while, and I assured her that, biblically speaking, that Good works is a good thing, but yet faith, faith is the preeminent thing, that good works flow out of faith, and the faith comes first. And she understood, and she wrestled with it for a while. And she settled in, and she said, oh, but those good works, those good works, when I do them, I somehow feel like they make me a better candidate for heaven. I wonder if you look at your spiritual resume and feel the same way. Maybe you've taught Sunday school for 20 years, or maybe you've been in the choir for 30, or maybe you use this Bible translation but not that one, or maybe you even went to a Christian college. I wonder if your spiritual resume makes you think that somehow you might be a better candidate for heaven. If anybody was tempted to feel this way, it would have been the Apostle Paul. Because the resume that he lists here is a rather impressive one. Look at it with me in verse 4. He says that though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Read in, my resume is better than yours circumcised on the eighth day of the Jewish descent or the people of Israel 
of the tribe of Benjamin. That is to say that he descended from Jacob and Rachel, the tribe that Moses called the beloved of the Lord, the tribe in which the first king of Israel was named, one of the only two tribes that did not rebel against the Davidic dynasty. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Moreover, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, it says in verse 5. He's immersed in Jewish culture. He understands his heritage, and he was educated in Jerusalem. As to the law, a Pharisee. Within the different sects of Judaism, the Pharisees were the ones that were serious. The Pharisees the ones who were strict. The Pharisees were the ones who were respected. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, it says in verse 6. And we know that in the formation of the early Christian church that many Jews rose up against them and persecuted them. And Paul, before he came to faith in the Lord, was one of the chief of these persecutors. He had Christians killed. Not out of some bloodlust, but out of a pure desire to please God by maintaining a pure form of Judaism. Nobody would ever accuse him of being lazy or only moderately interested. He went all the way all the time. And if those six things weren't enough, let's just top it off by giving the creme de la creme. It's as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now this is an impressive list. This is an impressive resume. If there were an open pastorate, he would get the job. If someone needed a Jewish theology professor, they would turn to him. If someone wanted personal counseling in the pursuit of the Lord, he'd be the first one that you'd recommend. Paul was the total package. And in fact, when you look at all of these seven things together, you might even say that this guy, this guy was an excellent candidate for heaven. But there's a surprising twist. And it comes in verse 7. After displaying the wonders of his own spiritual resume, he says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. On the one side is everything the world had to offer. It was every amount of success or accomplishment that Paul had by way of religious requirement or spiritual pursuit. Seven things in the most impressive resume that a Jew could compile to please God. And on the other side, just one thing. Seven things, seven big things, seven things that none of us in this room could attain. And on the other side, just one thing, one person, the person of Jesus. And Paul says that there is no doubt about who the winner is. Jesus is better. And so religious ritual won't give us standing before God. And our spiritual resume won't give us confidence before God. And in verses 7 through 11, he points out the reality that the righteousness of Christ is the only thing that gives us standing before God. Look at it with me. 
He says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Oh, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. The notion of a balance sheet is really interesting here, isn't it? Did you notice the language? He talks about counting three times. He talks about gains and he talks about losses. He's stepping back, and he's analyzing what he has and what he's become, and he's saying, what are the pluses and the minuses here, and where is this all going to work out? And it's interesting that he mentions these seven incredible things on his own spiritual resume, and they're wonderful things, and he calls them a loss, He doesn't even call them a neutral on this balance sheet. He calls them a loss. Likewise, I wonder if you, as a Christian, look at your experiences, the Christian heritage you've come from, the wonderful things that you have been able to do in service of the Lord, the things that you've given to him. Are those things a loss? Now, Paul is not saying that your spiritual heritage or your service to God or your pursuits of him are bad in and of themselves at all. In fact, they can be very good and very honoring to God. But what he is saying is that if these things lead you toward the notion that somehow you are good enough for God, then your resume is actually leading you astray. If your spiritual resume tempts you to think that you are a better candidate for heaven than you've been misled. What is greater than your resume? Verse 8, knowing Christ. Verse 9, gaining Christ. Verse 10, being found in Christ. And there are two things that he focuses on here with regard to knowing Christ. The first is the confidence that we have in his justifying work for us to stand before God. And the second is the enthusiasm or affection by which we pursue him. First, let's look at the first one. If ritual can't give me confidence standing before God, if my own spiritual resume can't give me confidence standing before God, what can? Paul says Jesus and Jesus alone gives you this standing. And in verse 9, he explains the dynamics by which the righteousness of Jesus is bestowed or imputed to you. That God would view you through a righteous lens by justifying you. And this lens is the lens of his son. Look at it with me. There's three parts to it. In verse 9, he says, To be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
The first thing we know is that this righteousness comes from God. That when you put your faith in Jesus, God gives you righteousness. It doesn't come from anywhere else but God himself. And as such, you know that it's pure, that it's perfect, and that it lacks nothing. Because God is pure, perfect, and he lacks nothing. He is giving you his very own righteousness. Secondly, that this righteousness is accessed by or depends on faith in Christ. That is to say that we receive the gift of God's righteousness by putting our trust in an object, a specific object, and this object here is a person, the person of Jesus. And thirdly, this righteousness that God gives to you is far superior than any else that Paul could achieve for himself by following the law. This righteousness that God gives for you is far superior to any amount of good works that you can do. It's far superior than any impressive spiritual resume that you might have. Even if you've been a Sunday school teacher for 20 years or a choir member for 30, this righteousness is better. But secondly, I hope that you feel the tone of enthusiasm and passion that Paul is talking about here. He's bleeding it. The fervor that he has is a natural extension of this consequence. When you have confidence in the work of Jesus to stand before God, then the next natural reality is that you would fervently and passionately pursue him. Because there is nothing greater in this life than knowing Jesus. I know that that's a big statement. And when you think about it for a moment, to say there's really there's nothing greater in this life than knowing Jesus, it's similar to Pastor Chris's explanation in the song that we sang just a couple moments ago. To say that he is all to us, that's a, that's a strong statement. <laughs> but I, pro- I proclaim it boldly. Because Paul does, there's nothing greater in this life than knowing Jesus. When you stack up the family that you've come from, the places you've been, the experiences you've had, the education that you have received, it all is nothing compared to knowing Jesus. When I think about the greatest practical pleasures of life, Good food, great conversation, wonderful books, the things that money can buy. All of it is rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. When I consider the wonderful family dynamic I have, a wife who I love dearly, we've been married for 15 years, and I'm still getting to know her and trying to figure her out. And these three little kids that we have, two great little girls and a little boy, and we're still trying to figure them out. And our friends uh, that we know and that we love, a cherished relationship with, that are like family to us, and how much joy they give us as we get to know them even more, and still trying to figure them out. And all of the dynamics that we have, all of the joy that we have in relationship, in family, in all of these things, compare not to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. When you understand the most important things in life and reality and eternity, and when you see true beauty for what it really is, then you come to the conclusion 
that there is nothing greater in this life than knowing Jesus. Do you believe that? Are you engaged in that? Or are you still trying to reach up to God when he has already reached down for you? There's nothing in life greater than knowing Jesus. Do you believe that, Christian? Are you still pursuing knowing him? Are your affections aligned for this type of growth? Or are you still struggling with sort of elementary things concerning coming to church consistently or reading your Bible regularly or figuring out how to tithe? There's nothing in life greater than knowing Jesus. Does your life reflect that reality, Christian? Or are you simply organizing your life by your own agenda? To do more and to have more and to experience more pleasure in this world. And if that is the case, and we have to wonder where your confidence to go before God really does lie. Because complete confidence in Christ leads toward a passionate pursuit of him. Andrew Murray said, we have no greater need, no greater need than to know Christ better. Count Zinzendorf of days gone by has said, I have one passion in life, just one, Christ. Thomas Akempis said, let our foremost resolve be to meditate on the life of Jesus Christ. Are you continuing to grow in knowing Jesus This is God's agenda for your life. Not just knowing about him, not just knowing the truth of salvation, but knowing the person through his word, through following him in obedience, through meditating on his life. Will you allow him to become your passion, your first priority, the thing that drives you in all that you do? Because there's nothing in life better than knowing Jesus. Will you continue to grow in knowing him? And when you do, you have joy in this life. When you gain Christ, you have the ability to fight sin. When you're found in him, you have forgiveness and righteousness that only God can give. And as you continue to know him, you continue to grow in loving him. And as you love him, you follow him. And as you follow him, you experience him. And as you experience him, you become more like him. And so Paul says, oh, that I may know him, verse 10, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There is nothing greater in life than knowing Jesus. A Christian visited a hospital and paused at each bed to say a word of prayer and to give out a gospel tract or a devotional tract. And at the close of the visiting hour, he came to the last bed in the ward and he spoke to the patient very briefly and he said, Dear man, when you come to the end of this life, will you go to heaven? And in a tone of defiance, the man replied, Oh, I think I shall go to heaven. What do you think they'll do in heaven? The visitor asked the man. Taken aback, the man hesitated, and he said, Well, I hadn't really thought about it before, but I imagine that they sing a great deal. That's right, the visitor said. 
And we have the words of the song in the Bible. And he opened the New Testament to Revelation chapter 5 and he began to read. And it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And the visitor said, I must go now, but I leave this New Testament with you and ask you to consider this question, this one question. If you were taken to heaven tonight, could you sing heaven's song? The next day, the Christian returned, and he went straight to the bed of the man who greeted him warmly, and he said, I read those verses 50 times last night, and I shall never talk about my good works again, because in heaven they sing praises to Christ for redeeming them by his blood. I've been trying to get to heaven without a savior, but now I know heaven's song, and I've trusted in his blood, and I can sing that song now. How many people are like this man? People who rush through life without a thought of what will certainly follow, hoping against hope that somehow they will reach heaven. They advance reasons for being received on the basis of good works, of fulfillment of rites or ceremonies, or the superiority of their character in comparison to the person next to them. But none of these things will avail. The refrain of heaven's song is, You were slain, and by your blood, you ransom men for God. If you do not learn to sing that song on earth, then you will never sing it in heaven. There's nothing in life greater than knowing Jesus. The eternal implications are before us. The immediate implications of great joy are before us. There's nothing in life better than knowing him and continuing to grow in knowing him. And so I imagine that there are some here today who have a decision to make. Some who have not yet put their trust in him and him alone for these immediate and eternal realities, for salvation. And if that's you today, then today you have an opportunity to do that. And we'll close our service with a chance for you to come and pray with somebody to do that. But I also know that for many of us here today who've put our faith in Christ some time ago, a passage like this challenges me and challenges many of us very personally because we have to ask the question, am I pursuing Christ with the level of enthusiasm and passion and affection that is displayed here? To say that everything else I have is rubbish compared to him? The pursuits of this world are nothing compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing him. I want to know him and gain him and be found in him. I want this to drive my life's agenda and to drive my happiness. And for some of us, that comes, that shift, it comes in the form of a decision. It comes in the form of a choice to realign or reorient ourselves to put him back in the first place. 
to allow him to become our passion again. And if you're here today and you need to make that choice, by all means, if the Spirit is convicting you, do not hold back from making a commitment of that type to God. The challenge before us and the great joy before us is knowing Jesus. Let's pray together and ask for God's help in this. Fathers, sing heaven's song and to think about the wonderful and magnificent sacrifice of Christ and the fact that we can know this one who was sacrificed for our life now and for our life in eternity. We thank you and praise you for such a gift as this, that the righteousness that we have comes from you, it's not of our own, that the gift that we receive comes through faith, not by anything we can do, and that this gives us confident standing before you. Lord, help us to realign our life's focus to knowing Jesus. Help us to see what that means practically. Help us to find great purpose and joy in this one reality and be glorified as we do. It's in the mighty name of the Savior Jesus we pray. Amen.